Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to So Emotional, a number one hit for Whitney Houston, co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Billy Steinberg. After Linda Ronstadt scored a top 10 hit with Steinberg's How Do I Make You in 1980, he went on to score a series of chart-topping singles co-written with Tom Kelly, including Like a Virgin by Madonna, True Colors by Cyndi Lauper, Alone by Hart, and Eternal Flame by The Bangles. Additional top 10 hits from the Steinberg-Kelly songbook include In Your Room by The Bangles, I Touch Myself by Divinals, I'll Stand By You by The Pretenders, and I Drove All Night, which was a major international hit three different times, first by Cindy Lauper, then by Roy Orbison, and finally by Celine Dion. After Tom Kelly retired from the music business, Steinberg partnered with Rick Knowles, with whom he won a Grammy for their production work on their original song, Falling Into You, which became the title track to Celine Dion's multi-platinum album in 1996. Since the mid-2000s, Billy has written extensively with Josh Alexander, with whom he penned JoJo's top five pop hit, Too Little Too Late, and Demi Lovato's Give Your Heart a Break. Additionally, the pair partnered with songwriter, producer, and previous Songcraft guest, Toby Gad, for Nicole Scherzinger's number one UK chart topper, Don't Hold Your Breath. Other artists who've contributed to Steinberg's long list of Billboard charting singles include Pat Benatar, Tina Turner, Susanna Hoffs, Chicago, Bette Midler, Ace of Bass, Phil Collins, Catherine McPhee, Carrie Underwood, and many others. Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2011. You know, not to toot our own horns. We should toot our own horns. Okay, let's toot our own horns for a minute. I, I think that every couple weeks, Songcraft listeners are able to expect they're going to get a great interview, a conversation with a great writer, and talk about some really you know, awesome hit songs right. that you're probably familiar with. This week, we've got something even better and cooler. I'm going to call it a Songcraft exclusive. Okay. Because Billy Steinberg let us have access to his demos, the demo recordings that he and Tom Kelly did before these songs even reached the A&R, the artists, or anything. Just right. like straight off, you know, hot off the press of them having written the songs. Yeah, yeah. My sense is that now a demo is basically the same thing as a master recording. There's right. almost as much production and and bells and whistles that go into a demo recording as there are into, you know, the final version of a song. Right. Um, but it's interesting to hear some of these rare demos from the 80s because they're a little bit more bare bones. Yeah. Um, and they sound like what a demo is meant to be. It's a demonstration of what the song could sound like. But it's... It's wild for me to hear like their original demo of of so emotional, which um, has a different feel than the way Whitney Houston wound up doing it. Um, one of the demos that he shared with us that we that we didn't embed in the interview um, is like a virgin, yeah. which um, is basically a roadmap for the final record. Right. Let's let's actually play a little bit of that right now. Yeah, and 
for those who don't know, that was Tom Kelly, who is Billy Steinberg's uh, songwriting partner. Uh, that was a man yeah. <laughs> singing that uh, that vocal part, which is amazing. Yeah, Tom could sing high. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, as, as you'll hear on the Alone demo and the uh, So Emotional demo, like, I mean, he sounds good. He's got good tone up there. Yeah. Um, he could have been in a hair metal band if he wanted. <laughs> totally. Um, but I thought it was cool of Billy you know to trust us with these demos and and also that he still got them um, right and that they're they're such a part of the story you know i tend to be really nostalgic about you know old things even like old stories that i wrote when i was a kid in elementary school um and to see that that billy which are riveting by the way they, they're incredible stories um and to see the billy with with his level of success and and the lengthy career that he's had um still has a great regard and appreciation even for his early demos I love it when we meet these guys who are wildly successful and they're still kind of music nerds at yeah, heart, totally. you know, and I, I liked, um, after the interview chatting with, with Billy about like his collection of, of vinyl 45s yeah. and, uh, he likes to hunt down, you know, rare original versions of songs that were made popular by other artists and great, you know, just collection of music memorabilia and yeah. stuff. And, and he was all too eager to show us that and let us like kind of geek out with him, yeah. which was great. Um, and I think that's why he let us share some of these demos with our listeners because he's still, uh, that guy who also kind of has, he gets a kick out of, out of hearing, um, you know, he, he likes to go into the depths of, of the music history yeah. and not just stay on the surface. And I really appreciate that about him. And as evidence of that, I want everyone to listen. When we get to the Roy Orbison part, you can hear Billy's face light up. Yeah, when he's talking about Roy Orbison, you can hear that he's smiling. Right. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, let's let's get into it. Let's hear it. Yep. Billy, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to uh, to be here with you in your beautiful office with a great view right down here in Santa Monica. Um, and I understand that you grew up in California, first in, in Fresno and then out in, in Palm Springs before heading to Bard College in New York in the late 1960s to, to study literature. And uh, your, your choice of major isn't really a huge surprise since you're known primarily as a lyricist, but we'd love to hear a little bit about how you first got started writing words um, and and what you can remember about the first song that you wrote? Well, uh, when I was in um, junior high school, I was singing in a rock band and I was the lead singer. It was a group called The Fables and that was in Palm Springs and we used to cover songs by the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Animals, the Beatles and uh, I didn't play an instrument it had never occurred to me to learn an instrument. It wasn't something that ran in our family or anything. So uh, on the side, I used to write quite a bit of uh, poetry, and I never connected the dots between the poetry and my love for music. It just seemed like two very separate endeavors. So um, I, I played in two different rock bands throughout high school, and then uh, I went off to college, as you mentioned, to Bard College in upstate New York. At that time, if you were to major in music, in most colleges, it meant you were studying classical music. 
It wasn't like it's not like today where you major in pop music at USC or something. Um, so obviously, I wasn't a classical musician, so it never even occurred to me to try to be a music major. Shortly after I arrived at Bard, I started to re pick up some of my poetry and put some of the poems to music on my acoustic guitar. And that was quite a revelation for me because I realized like uh, it was like a, a bolt of lightning that somehow because of, I had been such a rock fan my entire life that I had this innate sense of song structure. It didn't, I didn't have to study the song structure or rhyme structure or it just seemed like I just knew how to do it. So I was able to adapt the poems that I was writing into songs and the very first song I wrote was one called The New Jersey Song. And I used to uh, play my songs around the campus at Bard. That's how I got going. You know, I think I've heard you say before uh, in a previous interview that during your time in New York, you had the opportunity to play some of your songs for the legendary songwriting team of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Um, Mike Stoller has actually been a guest on our show, but they were already legends at that time. They had written hits like Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock, Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, a bunch of others. Talk about how your meeting with them came about and kind of what that experience was like for you as, you know, a guy who was just kind of getting started writing songs. Well, when I was starting out as a songwriter, I had a tremendous amount of confidence in myself. My confidence exceeded my uh, capabilities. And I think sometimes that's a blessing because if, if you really know how hard it is to succeed or what it's going to take, you might just quit. So I don't really remember who arranged the meeting with uh, Lieber and Stoller. I just have a very blurry recollection of walking into their office and seeing the gold and platinum records in the hallway and thinking like, all right, these dudes are going to discover me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, I just remember I played a couple of my songs for them and they were encouraging, but nothing really came out of it, but yeah. it was, you know, it was a good experience for me. Right, right. Um, well, I know that in the early 1970s, you returned to Palm Springs and started working on your dad's large grape vineyard out there in the Coachella Valley. Um, tell us about what kind of songs you were writing in those days, and if you were thinking about music as sort of a viable career option at that time. Well, as soon as I started writing songs when I was 18 at Bard College, I started thinking of it as a viable career. Yeah. I mean, I just always felt like that's, that was my destiny. And uh, when I went to work for my dad in the grape business, I got really engrossed in it. I mean, we had over a thousand acres of grapes and over a thousand employees. We had a collective bargaining agreement with the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez. So I was learning Spanish and learning about grape growing and I found it very interesting and I really enjoyed it a lot. And I even thought, well, if the music doesn't pan out for me, I wouldn't mind, you know, staying on and stay in the family business. Yeah. But um, I started listening to in the, uh, I guess it was the late 70s, uh, to uh, what they were calling new wave 
artists like Elvis Costello, The Talking Heads, Television, Blondie, some of Tom Petty's early songs like Breakdown. Yeah. And I, you know, I just kind of gave me a jolt of energy. And I sort of uh, took a different turn, whereas I had been writing sort of, I guess, in a folky style. I started to write more rock. And I, if anything, it was more like the kind of songs that I used to play in my high school rock band. So uh, that's when I really took off. You know, I yeah. wrote uh, some very good songs, and it caused me to put together a band, a new band. And you probably know something about that. Yeah, well, I did want to ask you about that. You know, as you say, in the late 1970s, you put together the band Billy Thermal. And that was, of course, named after the town of Thermal, where your father's vineyard was located. And you guys ended up signing a record deal with famed producer Richard Perry's Planet Records. Now, you guys made an album. Ultimately, it wasn't released at the time, but that whole process kind of ultimately led you into, you know, a career as a songwriter. Tell us how that band experience, maybe even unexpectedly, led to your first cut as a writer. I managed to meet um, a guy named Bob Carlyle, who played bass, and a guy named Efren Espinosa, who played drums. And then I needed a, a, a lead guitar player. So I called a friend of mine here in Los Angeles, a guy named Mark Saffin. And Mark, at that time, was signed to Planet Records and Richard Perry. Whereas I really didn't know people in the music business, Mark knew a lot of people. And uh, he sent guitarist Craig Hull down to this session I was putting together. So the very first session, it had uh, Efren on drums, Bob Carlisle on bass, Craig Hull on guitar, and Mark came Mark Saffin came and he brought along Wendy Waldman, the singer-songwriter, and Mark and Wendy sang background vocals. Hmm. And it just clicked. It's, you know, I would, I would play my song on the acoustic guitar for them, and the guys would work out an arrangement with me, and it happened so fast and it sounded so good that I, it was like a drug for me. I just yeah. felt, I got to have this. And so I understand it was, it was kind of through through Wendy and the guitar player, they kind of took it upon themselves to help you accidentally become a professional songwriter in a way, right? Right. Well, well, it wasn't originally a band. These guys, I was paying them to pay, play on my se demo sessions. That's right. how it started out. Right. And then I suggested, well, why don't we start performing together, make it a band, which we did. And um, we were playing clubs all over L.A., uh, the Blah Blah Cafe and uh, the Blue Lagoon, Club 88, Madame Wong's. And, you know, different A&R people would come to our gigs, including Richard Perry, who really liked what we were doing. But um, one day, Craig Hull came to me and he said, well, I played... How do I make you for Linda Ronstadt? And she really liked it, and she's going to record that song. Hmm. And I was very uh, cynical, really. Wendy Waldman, who had sung back up on some of these demos, she was a background singer in Linda's band at that time, and that's right. how the song—that's how Linda got to hear some of my songs. Yeah. 
But I had had some disappointments, you know, just playing songs for publishers and record companies. And it just seemed like you had to have a certain degree of uh, skepticism in order to survive. So I just thought, well, she probably has 30 songs that she's thinking of recording and mine will probably get dropped. Mm. But then um, at that time she was uh, dating our venerable governor jerry brown right and i was looking in the los angeles times and she linda did a linda ronstadt did a a fundraising concert performance for jerry and it said in the la times that linda tried out some of her new wave material in the the standout song was how do i make you by songwriter billy steinberg and i read that and i said Wow, maybe it's really going to happen. And, you know, not a lot of songwriters can say that their first real cut became a top 10 hit. I mean, that's pretty, pretty impressive, as that song did. Um, and even though that Billy Thermal album wasn't released at the time, Pat Benatar recorded a couple of the songs, I'm Gonna Follow You and Precious Time. And then we start seeing uh, an increase in activity in terms of other artists recording your original songs. Um, Rick Nelson recorded Don't Look at Me on his Playing to Win album in 1981. Uh, then Rick Springfield cut Just One Kiss on his Success Hasn't Spoiled Me Yet album in 1982. Um, that Rick Springfield cover um, was one of the earliest examples that I was able to find of a song getting cut that you wrote with Tom Kelly, who, of course, would go on to uh, collaborate with you on so many of of the big hits you guys wrote together in the 80s. Um, Talk a little bit about how you met Tom and what it was about your personalities or just the dynamic of your partnership that you think made it work so well. I had never really thought about co-writing. And I thought, well, I've had two cuts with Pat Benatar. They were both produced by a guy named Keith Olson. And at that time, I had never met Keith. But I I got a number for Keith, and I called him, and I said, would you like to meet up? And he said, oh, wow, you're one of my favorite songwriters. I'd Hmm. love to meet you. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm having a housewarming party at my new house. So I went to his party. I took my acoustic guitar with me. In retrospect, I realized it was kind of a slightly goofy, uh, amateurish thing to do, and sort of, cause I, but I just thought, okay, who knows who I'll meet at that party. If I have to, I'm going to start playing them my songs, you know? Because <laughs> right. I was very, I was very ambitious, you know? Right. I, I would play my songs for anybody, anytime, anywhere. Right. So I got to uh, Keith's party and I was introduced to Tom Kelly. He had written a song that was a hit for Pat Benatar called Fire and Ice. And he had really liked How Do I Make You, the Linda Ronstadt hit. So when I suggested to him that we co-write something, he said, absolutely, let's do it. So Tom and I got together in this guest cottage that he was living in and Tom started to play the piano and the guitar and I'm looking at him thinking that dude can play (laughs) I mean at that 
at best, I can just sort of strum the guitar and play some chords. But Tom's one of these guys who, you know, if I said to him, oh, play uh, Here, There, and Everywhere by the Beatles, he would just automatically know the chords to it. And uh, so it became clear that he was a superior musician to me. And he mentioned, well, that he doesn't really write song lyrics. So yeah. I thought, well, all right, well, he can play the, he can come up with the chords and I'll come up with the lyrics and we'll kind of work on the melodies together. Yeah. And we, you know, there was a lot of experimentation. I think it took us a while to figure out how to write together. Yeah, find that groove. Yeah. Well, the first charting single that you and Tom wrote together was a big one. It was Madonna's Like a Virgin, which was released as a single in 1984 and became your first number one pop hit as well as a top 10 R&B hit. Like a virgin, hey, touched for the very first time. Like a virgin, with your heart beat next to mine. Tell us kind of about the inspiration for those lyrics um, and how you and Tom kind of worked together to bring the final version of the song to life. What I would do, because I was working uh, six days a week in, in the vineyards, I would uh, drive around in my red Ford pickup truck. You know, I'd be thinking about songs and song writing, and so I'd always have a, a notebook in my truck. I had been in a relationship, not a great relationship, and... Um, it was very hard to extricate myself from that relationship. And when I finally did, and I met somebody new, I was, you know, I was kind of in a certain uh, ecstasy, kind of like, uh, you know, in, like infatuation. So I, 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 re I remember very clearly I was just writing. I just wrote without really thinking I, I wasn't thinking oh I'm gonna write a song about this I just wrote yeah. and I remember writing I made it through the wilderness somehow I made it through didn't know how lost I was till I found you and then it, I was beat incomplete I'd been had I was sad and blue but you made me feel shiny and new like a virgin it just fell out also I've always been a big Smokey Robinson fan. Yeah. And Smokey had an album track called Virgin Man. And I had just sort of filed it away in my mind that it was very uh, ambitious of him and sort of edgy yeah. to use that word virgin. Right. So I don't know. I wasn't thinking about his song when I was writing my lyric, but maybe he provided a little bit of inspiration there yeah yeah so then I would always get together with Tom so I had like a virgin and we got together to put music to that song yeah to that lyric I think people have certain perceptions of the music business and what the you know what the what the life of someone in the music business is like um, that sometimes is different from what the real life of a professional songwriter is like. 
Um, and I've, I've heard you say that you either maybe met Madonna once very much in passing, but that just because someone has a big hit with one of your songs, it doesn't mean suddenly you're now hanging out with that artist and, you know, talk a little bit about, about that. Back in the days when I was getting my career started, you know, it would not be unusual for a songwriter to write a song, make a demo, get it to either a manager or an A&R person. And the A&R person would then channel it to a producer who would produce it on an artist. And the songwriter and the artist might never meet. And that was the case with uh, Madonna and Tom and uh, me. Tom and I met her several years after Like a Virgin was a hit. I had tried to meet her immediately. (laughs) I figured, wow, she just had the biggest hit of her career with a song that I wrote. She's got to be dying to meet me. (laughs) She's going to want to co-write a song with me. She's going to want to record another song of mine. But it turned out that that was not the case. So... We Tom and I were invited to Freddie Demand's 50th birthday party. Freddie was Madonna's manager. Mm-hmm. It was a black tie thing. Right. So he had to wear a tuxedo. And I'm not a person that's that comfortable in like tuxedos. So I, I already felt a little awkward, you know, right. walking in in a tuxedo. And uh, we went into the party and we walked out onto a terrace and Steve Bray was out there. And Steve was a fellow songwriter who I knew, you know, vaguely. I had met him before. I wouldn't say we were close friends, but I knew him. But I also knew that he had written songs with Madonna. So Tom and I were standing talking to him and then I could see coming towards us, Madonna with uh, Warren Beatty. She was dating him at the time. So it, I thought to myself, well, this is, this is perfect. I mean, Stephen Bray, her songwriting partner, he, to make the introduction, this is perfect. So she walked over to Stephen and Tom and me and with Warren. And Stephen said, uh, Madonna, I'd like you to meet Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who wrote Like a Virgin. And Warren started to laugh because I think he was thinking, well, why would she be introduced to the guys who wrote Like a Virgin? She must know them. Right. But in fact, she didn't know us and we didn't know her. And so I just took a deep breath and I said, hey, Madonna, it's I've wanted to meet you for so long. And she just said, well, now you did. (laughs) And she grabbed Warren and walked off. And so Tom Kelly started laughing hilariously because he, Tom, one of Tom's favorite things in life was to make fun of me because I tend to be kind of, you know, I'm, put my foot out there and I was kind of gushing and I had been shot down by her and he thought that was funny. 
Well, Pat Benatar recorded eight or nine of your songs in the early 1980s, but her first actual charting single with the Billy Steinberg composition came with the top 40 hit Sex is a Weapon in 1985, which is one that you wrote with Tom. And this is the era when we really start to see the the Steinberg-Kelly team begin to take over the, the pop world, um, as evidenced by your second number one hit the following year, Cyndi Lauper's True Colors. But I see your true colors shining through. I see your true colors. And that's why I love you. So don't be afraid to let them show your true colors. True colors are beautiful like a rainbow. Though these are so called pop songs we're talking about. They're also songs that are very much well-crafted, I think, in a way that a lot of pop songs, at the risk of sounding cynical, today don't tend to have a lot of the integrity of of depth and song structure that some of the things did um, in that era. And I'm curious, do songs like True Colors um, come quickly and easily for you, or is it a process of, of shaping and sculpting and, and honing it down to exactly what you want it to be? Of any song I've written in my career, that one took the longest. I mentioned to you earlier that my method was kind of stream of consciousness, and I had a lot of uh, faith in that, because I felt like Anything that came out in that method had depth to it, and it would be good. So I I hadn't really developed the technique of being able to rewrite songs. So I had written a verse, and I started writing the lines, You've got a long list with so many choices a ventriloquist with so many voices and your friends in high places say where the pieces fit you've got too many faces in your makeup kit but I see your true colors shining through and then it went and completed the chorus so just like I said in like a virgin having written the line you made me feel shiny and new like a virgin in the same way with true colors i wrote the line you've got too many faces in your makeup kit but i see your true colors shining through so it was that last line of that verse that triggered the title and i got together with tom and he banged out the melody for the verse and the chorus for True Colors. And, um, you know, it was a beautiful thing. It sounded great. We made a, a demo of it, but it wasn't a completed demo because for some reason we made a demo with just one verse and a chorus. It d- definitely needed a second verse, but... So Tom, who doesn't usually meddle with lyrics... He said to me, you know, the, the chorus lyric is so universal. 
I see your true colors shining through. I see your true colors. That's why I love you. He said, you know, that's a, an amazingly universal sentiment. I mean, you could say that to your child, to your friend, to your boyfriend or girlfriend or to your parent or whatever. Well, the verse that I had written, as it turns out, was kind of about my mother. She had friends in high places, and uh, there were a lot of little references in that verse that were about her. And Tom, I think he knew that she had inspired that verse, and he said, so he said, whereas your chorus lyric is so universal, the verse and he was very, you know, he, he was very respectful about it. He said, you know, you, your verse is like a brilliant piece of writing and poetry, but it's really about a very specific person. Do you think the song would have a better chance in the world if you wrote a verse or, you know, verses, because we needed two of them, that were as universal as the chorus? And I reluctantly conceded that he was probably right. So then I was faced with my big nemesis, and that was the idea of rewriting something. But I didn't have a clue how to do it. So every time I'd get together with Tom, he'd play the intro to True Colors, and I would just, it would infuriate me because I'd been avoiding trying to do it. And I always wrote lyrics by myself. But Tom said, look, why don't we, why don't we try to do it together? And I remember, um, so my original lyric, it started out, you've got a long list. So it has that word, you. I don't remember exactly, but Tom and I definitely worked together on the first couple lines of the new verse, you with the sad eyes. Yeah. Well, you and Tom hit number one yet again in 1987 when Hart took your song alone to the top of the charts. I believe you guys had previously recorded that as part of an artist deal you had as a duo known as I-10 on Epic Records, but, you know, it didn't really gain traction and find its home until Hart did it. how a good song can sink or swim depending on so many other factors you know beyond the song itself I mean the right artist or the right timing Tom and I recorded that with our band I-10 for some reason the best song on that record as a composition was probably alone but probably the worst recording was also alone yeah the version of alone on that record is not good Mm. And the whole experience of making that record, the I-10 record, was for me a very unpleasant one. So Tom and I had hit it pretty big with Like a Virgin and True Colors, and I was definitely leaving that whole let's be artists experience behind. Yeah. Tom and I heard that uh, Hart was looking for a power ballad, and... 
Tom immediately said, well, how about a loan? And I immediately said, no way. <laughs> there were a couple problems with that idea. One, it was all tangled up with that unpleasant I-10 experience. But then also, I knew that there was a flaw with the chorus. And really, the verse was perfect, and the whole chorus was perfect. It was just the first line of the chorus. On the I-10 version, the lyric says, I always fared well on my own. It's awkward. I mean, as a lyric, it's awkward. Fared well. Who says I always fared well <laughs> on my own? It was kind of really like bad writing. Hmm. And then the melody that went along with it was kind of boring too. Hmm. That was enough to make the song like right. broken. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. But Tom realized the song was great and we could resurrect it. Wow. So I just tried to rewrite the concept that originally said, I always fared well on my own. And I just kind of paraphrased it and said, till now I always got by on my own. Tom took that and wrote a new melody to it. It had, you know, it had more syllables. It was, it, it allowed a completely different melody. Yeah. So even though we really only changed one line, it was a very vital change. It was yeah. a key change. And we made a new demo with Tom singing it and just playing the piano. And the new demo was great. played it for uh, Hart's producer and they just said that's the power ballad we were looking for nice nice so that was great well the hot streak continued uh, when you and Tom had your third consecutive charting single that became a number one hit uh, Whitney Houston's recording of so emotional there are certain songs that um, well I think true colors is an example of a song that um, it's been done by um, Phil Collins as a big hit version that was basically as big a, a hit version as the or original Cyndi Lauper version. Um, but then there are songs like So Emotional that I very much associate with Whitney Houston. Um, now, when you're writing, do you generally try to cast your songs for a particular artist as you're creating them, trying to write in a, in a particular direction, or do you just kind of write them and then figure out where it's going to fit later on. When Tom and I got together to write, we never wrote songs for particular artists. We preferred to just write a song as if we were writing it for the fun of writing a great song. Yeah. And that's how we wrote Like a Virgin and Alone and True Colors. But with So Emotional, it's different because Clive Davis called us and said, I'm looking for an up-tempo song for Whitney Houston. Certain artists like, well, Whitney Houston would be one, they find it easier to find ballads for them. Hmm. To find an up-tempo hit for Whitney was a challenge. And at the time, Tom and I were big Prince fans. Our demo, if you were to hear it, you would hear the Prince influence all over it.
Now, when Michael Narda Walden produced it for Whitney, it sort of lost that Prince yeah. vibe. But it was definitely on our demo. Huh. And, and I would say Prince inspired us to write that song. You know, in the late 1980s, you and Tom found a good bit of success with the Bangles, who made In Your Room a number five hit, and Eternal Flame was yet another number one. I believe it's meant to has a bit of a different structure than your typical stuff. I mean, the, the way the verse and the chorus kind of work. Um, talk a little bit about that song. To me, that song doesn't have a chorus. The verse of Eternal Flame turned out to be the chorus because in the end of the song, when the entire, all the girls in the bangles chime in and they sing that first verse over, all of a sudden it doesn't feel like a verse anymore. It feels like a chorus. Yeah, yeah. But it was written in the style of uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, and For No One, some of those great melodic McCartney ballads from Revolver, the Beatles' Revolver album. And the idea was, you know, you write a song, and it has a, it's so melodic that it, you don't really have to have a chorus. It just The title just kind of gets tagged on the end of the verse, hmm. and that's what Eternal Flame is. Yeah, interesting. But we never really planned these things out. They just sort of happened, you know. And I was so lucky with Tom Kelly because my experience since I've written with Tom has taught me, in a way, how lucky I was. Because Tom, he would never, ever say to me, oh, I need more syllables. Can you give me, like, can you lengthen this line? Or he just respected the lyrics that I was writing and left them intact. And he would alter his melody to suit the lyric. Yeah. Whereas most people, they want to do the opposite. They want to come up with a melody and have me rewrite the lyric. And sometimes it makes the lyric worse because... Mm. I, I, I like to write the lyrics ahead of the music. And then if I have to add to it, it doesn't necessarily improve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Let's talk about uh, I Drove All Night a little bit. Obviously, that's one of those songs that was a hit for Cyndi Lauper. It was uh, a hit for Celine Dion. Um, some people might... And not, Roy Orbison. Yeah, I was going to say some people might not realize uh, in the U.S., that that was a top 10 hit for, for Roy in the UK. Um, and I understand there's a pretty interesting, pretty Roy Orbison centric history to, to the way that whole song came together. I'd love to hear that. Well, um, Tom grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in California and we have very different personalities, very different tastes and things. But the one thing we had in common when we went back and looked at our childhoods or our teenage years and what songs we liked and what right. artists we liked, we were just like twins. We liked the same stuff. And that's part of what made us a great songwriting team. Yeah. 
And at a certain point, we realized we both loved Roy Orbison. So I had this lyric, I drove all night. And the first line, I had to escape. The city was sticky and cruel. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's got some muscle there, you know? And so when, I, when Tom and I got together, he read the lyric and just kind of went into Roy Orbison mode. And we just had really fun with it, you know, the idea of writing a, a song in that style of Roy Orbison. Yeah. A real rangy melody and tremendous drama. Yeah. And at the time, there was a band signed to uh, Columbia Records here in Los Angeles, and the band was called Cock Robin. The main guy in the band was a guy named Peter Kingsbury. And Peter Kingsbury was from Texas. And he, was, he sang so much like Roy Orbison. And I just loved that band. I would go hear him perform. Whenever they were playing around town, I'd always go. And I was a big fan, you know? Yeah. And Peter at the time, he was a very... Uh, kind of arrogant guy, you know. He had that voice, and he was signed to Columbia Records, and he felt like he had it going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he did. And so I suggested to him that he and Tom and I get together. And we had written and demoed the song, I Drove All Night. So he came up to our studio, and I said, we've got this great new song, and we'd love you to do it to cut it and he listened to the song and he went well, that's a good song but like I write my own songs so we were kind of disappointed you know so then we had the song and I saw an advertisement in the LA Times that Roy Orbison was playing at a so-called supper club in the Orange County and we went down to that club and I had never seen Roy perform you know, this was like a little, it was before the days where there were videos of everybody and you could go on YouTube and see anybody. Right. I Not only had I never seen Roy Orbison perform, I kind of couldn't even imagine him performing. Hmm. I only had his songs in my head. I only had his records in my head. And I couldn't quite picture how a guy could do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I sort of, prepared myself it's going to be like an old guy and he's going to come out and sing these songs and I can't expect too much you know yeah so we're in this crowded supper club and everybody in there was you know kind of middle-aged people that loved Roy Orbison in the 60s and it was now the 80s and the band came on and the background singers started singing the intro to only the lonely and then Roy came out and he sang the first line, Only the Lonely. And it was, oh my God. It was, he sang all his hits, one after the other. And he sang them, if it's possible, better than the record. Wow. Every song. And Tom and I were just looking at each other all night at that concert thinking, is this really happening? <laughs> so afterwards, we went to this little trailer. I mean... He didn't have a recording contract at the time. And we met his manager, and we met him, and we said, oh, yeah, well, 
Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, and we love Roy, and we wrote Like a Virgin and True Colors, and we'd love to do some work with Roy. So we ended up arranging to uh, get together with Roy. Hmm. So I was at Tom's house, and we had an appointment with Roy Orbison. I remember Tom and I walked out because he was going to get his mail, and I walked out with him. I look, we looked down the street, and there in the distance we see a red Ferrari convertible coming up that street. Hmm. And the only person that could have been in that car was Roy Orbison because <laughs> you just wouldn't see a car like that right. on a residential street in Woodland Hills. <laughs> I mean, my my knees were weak just thinking Roy Orbison's <laughs> right. driving up the street here. And it was a convertible, you know, and he got out of the car all dressed in black with black sunglasses. And he was such a gentleman. I mean, he was, we were just like puppies, just, oh, Roy, you know, you're our <laughs> hero. And we love all your songs. Tell us about In Dreams. Tell us about crying tell us about pretty woman and he was very obliging whereas i told you that peter kingsbury from cock robin he had an attitude he didn't want to know about our song (laughs) roy was the opposite here was roy orbison one of the greatest artists of the 20th century right so we said well we we've got this song i drove all night and we kind of wrote it for you and he said oh let me hear it so we went in the studio, and we all put headphones on, and Tom had already sung a demo vocal, and Roy heard it and learned the song, and he did two takes. And there's a part of the song, it says, I was dreaming while I drove the long straight road ahead, uh-huh, yeah, it goes like that. Yeah. And when Tom and I wrote it, just the whole idea of the uh-huh, yeah, it was like Roy Orbison, you know, it was like Pretty Woman where he goes, oh, you know, something. it was like a real macho, like, uh-huh, yeah. So there we are with Roy Orbison in Tom's living room, and he's going, uh-huh, yeah, and he did it, he did it like Roy Orbison, and Tom and I are going, whoa, so real. it was insane. So he, he sang two takes of the song, and he had to go. So, like I said, he didn't have a recording contract. And Tom and I had recently had a big hit with Cindy Lauper, True Colors. And we had never met Cindy, but we were, we were invited to work with her. And so we flew to New York to, to work with Cindy. And I have to say, it wasn't that easy to write songs with Cindy, because Tom and I... We had a way to write songs together. We didn't need any help. Yeah. And Cindy is a great songwriter in her own right, but in some ways she was interfering in a way with us. But we had already written I Drove All Night, and so we played it for her, and she loved it. It was a natural thing for her to cut I Drove All Night. And it wasn't like we were taking it away from Roy Orbison because he didn't even have a deal. Right. We just gave her the demo with Tom singing it. And she recorded a couple songs that we wrote with her. And she recorded I Drove All Night. 
So it came out by Cindy Lauper, and it was a hit for Cindy. Then Roy Orbison got signed. They made Roy Orbison's solo record. They didn't need help from Steinberg and Kelly. They just made it with Jeff Lynne. And they came up with You Got It, which was a great hit. And Roy had a comeback, which was fantastic. And, you know, and then he did the Traveling Wilburys project. And when you got Bob Dylan and George Harrison and Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty, you definitely don't need Steinberg and Kelly. <laughs> so, you know, we were happy that Roy had legions of new fans. And then our hero, Roy Orbison, passed away. And we were, you know, of course, really sad about it. And I guess a few years had gone by since Cindy Lauper's version of I Drove All Night. And I called Jordan Harris, who was an A&R guy at Virgin Records. I said, did you, did you ever hear Roy's recording of I Drove All Night? And he goes, no, I didn't hear it. And he says, as a matter of fact, we have some material and we want to put out a record on Roy of the remaining material. And we sent him the demo of Roy singing I Drove All Night. And he flipped for it and he goes, give me, this, give me the thing. So we gave him the 16 track. He gave it to Jeff Lynn. And Jeff Lynn took those two tracks of Roy's vocals. There was, you know, take it or leave it, that's all there were. But they were great. They were great vocals, and he built a new track around it, and that's how that happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. No one can move me the way that you do. Nothing erases the feeling between me and you. Oh, I drove all night to get to you. Is that all? Well, as we move into the 90s, you and Tom continued to have hits like Tina Turner's Top 10 Adult Contemporary single, Look Me in the Heart, Susanna Hoff's My Side of the Bed, which was a Top 40 pop hit. You know, but one of the biggest songs you guys wrote in the 90s was I Touch Myself by Divinals, which is credited to you, Tom, and Mark and Chrissy from the band. You know, I look at a song like this and a title like Like a Virgin. I mean, those are provocative titles. Um, Is that something that you kind of set out to achieve? Well, you know, some of the most provocative lyrics that were ever written are in blues songs. If you listen to Big Joe Turner singing Shake, Rattle, and Roll, (laughs) and you really listen to the lyrics to that song, forget about it. (laughs) I don't care whether you're talking about Prince or any of the rappers today or Like a Virgin or I Touch Myself. You can't get sexier lyrics than the ones that are in those blues songs. Like many human beings, you know, sex is a a motivating factor in, in my life, and I don't know, I... I wrote some lyrics like I'll Stand By You or True Colors that are very genuine and sincere and they have a certain type of message to them. Or love songs like, I don't know, Eternal Flame or Alone. But then there's other songs that are definitely like sex is a big part of the song. Yeah. 
you know, some when I play that song live, people always say, "Well, what what made you write that song?" Like they like it's some kind of a joke or something. And I always say, "I just like to play with words." Uh-huh. You know, cuz you they would think what you're going to say is like to play with myself. But, <laughs> right. but I just like to play with words, but I mean really just like like I've cited to you in the past on Like a Virgin or True Colors. With that song, I just remember I was writing, I love myself, I want you to love me. Right. When I feel down, I want you above me. Hmm. I search myself, I want you to find me. I forget myself, I want you to remind me. And it just led to, I don't want anybody else, when I think about you, I touch myself. I don't know. Yeah. It was just, you know, playing with words, really. Yeah, yeah. But... I like to be provocative. You know, that's a song um, that I would have a hard time imagining a male artist doing. I think it would play a lot differently. Um, and I realized when we were preparing for this interview, looking at your your cuts, um, your first 16 charting singles on the Billboard charts were female artists. It wasn't until Chicago... Um, did you come to my senses? Don't that remind was, me about that. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first, the first. Well, Roy male. Orbison is in there, right? Although, uh, but that didn't chart in the U.S. So just the okay, Billboard, well, you know, the Billboard charting. If you uh, want to be so exact, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it did. It did strike me that, um, and of course, there's Weird Al like a surgeon, but you can't count that because that's uh, you know yeah. a parody thing. Um, yeah. But you know, what are your thoughts on? as a man, how you've been so able to successfully tap into the right lyrics and emotions that have, have attracted predominantly female artists? That's a really hard question to answer. Because like, like I was telling you about the song Like a Virgin, that song in particular, that lyric was really written about me. There's no question about it. And True Colors, you know, that song... Those lyrics were originally, it was me writing something about my mom. I don't know. I just, I write stuff and I never really set out to write songs for women. And yet, like you say, most of my biggest hits have been recorded by women. In terms of the lyrical content, I really don't have any theory about it. You know, I'm very much heterosexual and... Like the, like, I'll give you an example. Like you mentioned earlier, the song Sex as a Weapon, okay? Mm-hmm. The melody was good for Pat Benatar, but right. lyrically it was like ridiculous. <laughs> but they tried to think, okay, well, it's about sex in advertising. Right. So they tried to justify the idea of Pat Benatar singing that song, but it turned it into something it wasn't. Mm. I mean, it really should have been sung by a guy. Right who could have been expressing the real sentiment of what the song was written about. This poor guy being (laughs) tantalized by this girl. And I think one of the theories I have about why females recorded the song is Tom Kelly has a really, really high voice. Mm -hmm. He would always record our songs in really high keys. That's part of the reason. But then you could also make an argument about the lyrics, like if a guy if a guy had recorded like a virgin or I touch myself, would that have worked? Probably not so well. Yeah, yeah. But then again, like with sex as a weapon, it should have been a guy. Yeah, yeah. 
So I don't know. It's a good question, but there's yeah. no real answer that I can tell you. Yeah. Well, in 1994, the Pretenders album, Last of the Independents, included about a half dozen songs that you and Tom wrote with Chrissy Hind, including the hit single, I'll Stand By You. I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. Won't let nobody hurt you. I'll stand by you. So. Tell us about working with Chrissy and how that song came together. Well, of all the artists I've ever worked with, she's my favorite. Hmm. In terms of her voice and who she is as an artist, but also, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bangles fan and I'm a Susanna Hoffs fan, but if you look at the Bangles hits, they weren't really written by the Bangles. They wrote a lot of good album cuts and they were a wonderful band. But if you look at the Pretenders, other than the stuff that Chrissy wrote with Tom and me, she wrote these songs herself. Yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's no question that sitting in a room with Chrissy Hind, it isn't like you have to write the song and then she's going to sing it. With her in the room, there's three songwriters in the room. Yeah. Without any question. We were writing I'll Stand By You, and I was thinking, I wasn't voicing this to her, but I'm thinking to myself, this is a great song, but this is a little mainstream and ballady for Chrissy Hind. Maybe she's not going to really like like this song. Huh. And I mean, in truth, kind of that was that was what happened. If you look at the album, not that albums hardly exist anymore, but the last <laughs> of the independents, a lot of times song albums would be sequenced by how artists liked the songs. Yeah. And if you look on there, I'll Stand By You is kind of buried. <laughs> it was like she sort of realized, okay, well, this is a great song, but is it really a pretender song? I don't know. So that was one of the things that, that sort of dimmed our enthusiasm for the song. We felt like, oh, we wrote a great song, but is it a pretender song? Maybe yeah. not. But uh, it turned out far and away to be the most meaningful copyright of anything we wrote with Chrissy Hind. Sure. And that song, it ranks right up there with True Colors now as, as like, yep. for Tom and me, our copyrights in terms of songs that get uses, yep. that get covered, that get yep. used, you know, it's... They use it in commercials. Yeah. yeah, yeah, They use it on American Idol. There's like, you know, it's been very nice that, that you know, that there was a period where we wrote a lot of songs with Chrissy. It's nice for us that one of them turned out to be one of our most uh, meaningful compositions. So ultimately, Tom got out of the business, quit writing. Um, you wound up working with some other people. Um, but I'm curious after having had so much success with, with Tom, when he made the decision to, to step away, what was your process and your reaction to his decision? Well, I think I didn't fully appreciate what our chemistry meant. 
you know, when I told you that, you know, as kids we loved Roy Orbison and we loved Smokey Robinson and we knew all the same records, that meant a lot. And also, you know, Tom is an extraordinary talent. He's a, an amazing songwriter. And Tom and I, you know, it's like if you cook some food, you sit down at the table, you got a salt shaker and a pepper shaker. You don't want to sit down and there's two salt shakers and no pepper. <laughs> I mean, Tom and I, kind of like the ingredients were there, you know yeah. what I'm saying? The, the seasonings were there. So when I was faced with the idea of going out and writing songs with other people or whatever, it, nev it never really occurred to me, okay, I think I'll go back and do what I did before I met Tom, which is write songs by myself. Because I think I had lost confidence in my ability to write hit songs by myself. Because by that time, production was getting already getting more and more important. Yeah. And I just knew there was no way I'm going to go back to just writing songs on my acoustic guitar by myself. So that's kind of what it was like. Interesting. Well, you and, and Rick Knowles had a, a streak of successful cuts and several international hits in the mid-90s. I know you guys uh, even won a Grammy for your production work on Celine Dion's Falling Into You. Um, and so Rick was kind of uh, the guy you were, were working a lot with. And then since the mid-2000s, you've written extensively with, with Josh Alexander. And you, know, you guys have, have had success with JoJo's Too Little Too Late and Catherine McPhee and um, all these hits that have come since you've you've been working with him and um i'm curious about kind of the the nuts and bolts of of working with josh what your collaboration with him looks like versus the nuts and bolts of your collaborations with tom you know there's that's such a complicated answer to that question i started to write songs with tom when i was 31 years old you know a lot of people have a lot of success writing in their 20s I didn't. I had my success started when, when I was turned 30. How do I make you for Linda Ronstadt? I was 30. But, you know, I don't care whether you're talking about Burt Bacharach and Hal David or Carol King and Jerry Goffin or any songwriting teams or songwriters. You know, people oftentimes write, do their best work over a span of Time. It might be a guy like John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful. It might have, or John Phillips from The Mamas and the Papas. Might have written, those guys might have written their best songs over a two or three year period. So, you know, Tom and I, we met just at the right time in our lives when we were, you know, we were charged up to take the music business by storm, to, uh, sort of to harvest what we had planted in terms of our own preparation as songwriters and music lovers. and So it was kind of, in a sense, effortless. So at least for me, you know, like writing with, with Josh, he's more than 30 years younger than I am. So, you know, the songs that he grew up listening to aren't the songs I grew up listening to. They're the songs you wrote. <laughs> well, in fact, 
There are probably songs that came after my biggest hits, the ones that he grew up listening to. But I don't know. It's just hard to recreate that thing where Tom and I are from the same generation, love the same music, and we're just at the peak of our abilities. You know, there's a, there's a, a few songs I wrote with Rick Knowles, like Falling Into You is one of them. And then there's another one we wrote together called Tears from the Moon that was cut by Sinead O'Connor. You know, there's some songs there that I feel like really super proud of and that I feel like some of my best writing. Josh and I wrote a song recently called My Stupid Heart. And I'd say it's, you know, it's for me, it's the best song Josh and I have written together. You know, Tom and I, it was the right place at the right time, yeah. and the right two people, so it's hard to make comparisons. Yeah. Well, another one of your successes with Josh Alexander came with Demi Lovato's 2012 hit, Give Your Heart a Break. You know, as someone who's been in the game for more than 35 years um, and you find yourself, you know, working with younger and younger artists and watching the trends change, where do you continue to find ideas and inspiration? I mean, particularly uh, with lyrics, you know, things that are still relevant for current pop stars. Well, I'm not as prolific as I used to be. Sometimes if I have a songwriting session and I just don't have any new ideas, I might even pull out a notebook of that I had written in back in the 80s or the 90s. I might find something in there. But then, like the one I told you, I mean, Josh and I recently wrote this song, My Stupid Heart, and that's, that's not an old idea. That was a new one. And yeah. So I still get some good ideas, but I wouldn't say they're just like bubbling under the surface like as prolifically as they were in... Uh, the 80s, for example, or the yeah. 90s or something. Yeah, yeah. If you can tap into human emotions, I, peop, you know, humans are humans. You know, you can still write, even if you're like my age, you can still write a song for somebody who's young if you can tap into it, you know? Yeah, there's that universality of human emotion. Yeah. Well, you've certainly written so much of the soundtrack of our lives, and honestly, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of, of your incredible career. But thank you so much for sitting down and taking some time with us today. Yeah, uh, It's been a great time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.